Well, when I was growing up uh, in the Duma household, and me and my brother Daniel, uh, or Dave, or my sister Sarah or Liz, we would get into a scuffle or a fight, and we would say the words, I hate you. And what would my mom come beelining around the corner say? You can't say that word. You can only hate one person. And Christians, Christian parents, who were we allowed to hate? The devil, yes. I knew I was allowed to hate the devil. I didn't really know him that well, but I was told I was supposed to hate him, so I hated him. And I had a feeling or an affection towards that word. And so today, what we are going to talk about is what God hates. Man, why would we talk about that? Sunday morning, it's October, I got my flannel on, you got your pumpkin spice in your hand, you're feeling good. Why would we talk about what God hates? Because what you hate and what God hates is connected to what we love and what God loves. I could ask you all a question and go around and we could take some time. I can pull up some friends up here on stage and I can say, all right, tell me what you love. Maybe you would give an answer like this. The first picture I have is someone I love tremendously. Go ahead and pull up the first photo for me. That is my daughter, yes. And all you college kids are like, why babies? You know, we pull up, I love my daughter. It produces a ton of affection for me. She's louder than I am, she's crazy, and I love her a lot. It produces love in me. The next photo is my daughter and my wife. I love both of them tremendously. It causes a feeling or affection for me in my heart. The next photo is a picture of some baptisms we did over the summer with our college group uh, off at someone's swimming pool. These four students received Christ as Savior and publicly showed their profession of faith through baptism. If any of you know me, I love baptisms. I love seeing people show that they are following Christ and making that decision. But if I were to ask you what you love, you would have some things that you hate. The first thing that you would hate, which may be debatable, is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Maybe you hate the Steelers. Maybe, I hate, maybe you hate the Browns. But as a Browns fan, it's, a, it's been a long road. We're very hopeful, optimistic. Hope makes the heart sick, hope deferred. So we are hoping that the Browns win more than five games. And that the Steelers, we, we hate the Steelers. Or for some of you, it'd be the Michigan Wolverines. You hate the Wolverines. We are excited for Ohio State to win their 15th year in a row to that team up north coming up. We hate the Michigan Wolverines. Or for some of you, you're not a big sports guy, but it's how people park. You hate people like this. And if you're like me and I pull up somewhere and I'm in a rush and I see this car, I don't want to just have a conversation with you. I need to talk with you. I mean, we need to sit down, we need to discuss, because there is no longer hatred in my heart towards you. I want to hit your car and leave a mark for you. Or for some of you, if you're like me, man, it's traffic. If I see traffic, I start to hyperventilate. I don't know why. It is when the most ungodliest Mike Duma comes out. I know it's not anyone's fault, I get on Maslin Road and they're doing all that construction, praise God, but I get there, I start to breathe heavy and I start to blame the car in front of me. It's not their fault, but they're in front of me and I'm yelling at them. They can't hear me, but I hate traffic. Why do I bring up these things of what we love and what we hate? Because what you hate is always connected to what you love. Every single time. What you hate 
is connected to what you love. If I love my daughter and someone does something to her, I will kill you. That is just a reality. If I love my wife and someone does something to her, I will hurt you back. It is a reality when you love and hate something. I love being on time for some weird reason. I feel like God loves me more when I'm on time. And when I'm late, I think he's mad at me. I hate traffic. When I was about six or seven years old, uh, my brother and I, Daniel, we headed over uh, to Tommy, Tommy's house to see if he was home. And when we got there, what did we do? We walked up to the door, we knocked. No one was home. So we go over to the other kid's house, knock. No one was home. So what did we decide to do? Well, when you have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old who were running around the neighborhood, don't blame my parents, this was cool. it was cool back then, it was a long time ago, running around the neighborhood with nothing to do and we're bored, what happens? Very, very bad things. So the neighbor next to us, or behind us, had a Jeep Wrangler, brand new, off the lot. And what did we decide to do? I don't remember why we did this, I don't remember the details of doing it, I just remember vandalizing the vehicle. We took dirt and we threw dirt in the vehicle. We had popsicle juice. We dumped it in the vehicle. I remember, there are times like this, some of you would know, you go unconscious during those moments and you don't recall why you did them. I think we threw a frog in there. I just remember doing crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, you know, if you've ever done something like that, your heart's pumping, you're racing. And I remember like running back to the house, we're laughing about it. And this is just a side note of the story. I remember we were getting home for dinner and I remember me and my brother Dan, we had to go pee. So what did we do? We peed in the shed. Not a big deal. I remember hearing my mom from the window yelling at us for peeing in the shed. And in the back, I could hear my dad laughing. So we decide to come in the house, no big deal. About an hour goes by. Uh-oh. Neighbor comes home, comes to our house, heard that the two little Duma Hellions were destroying the Jeep. So what did my dad do? I mean, it was a family event. We had seven of us. I remember this. And some of my siblings would. We all go over to the house, like the whole squad. We're showed up just sitting there, and we are watching him clean the Jeep. I don't know why, but we watched him. And then we got home, we all go in the basement, a family affair. And my dad told us this, we had a decision to make. We got to pick our switch. What's a switch? I didn't know what a switch was. I just knew at that time, I learned, my dad applied Proverbs, do not withhold the rod. So I got to go out, pick my branch, come back in, what's this for? Bam, I got spanked. One of many, many times. Now, why would my parents spank me. Yeah, I was a bad kid, but it wasn't because they hated me. It was because they loved me. They loved me, and because they loved me, they showed discipline. So today, we are talking about what God hates and why on earth would God hate anything? Why would he? That's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, I want to talk about this book of Proverbs. If you have a Bible, a phone, I would encourage you to be in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, if you got a phone, if you're new to this thing, type in Google Proverbs 6. I will have majority of them up on the screen. This question, though, poses for us is, what is a proverb and why study them? Um, a proverb is simply a riddle. It is simply something that we use as helpful tools to remember something. Uh, you and I know proverbs. Finish the phrase if you can. Actions speak louder than what? Words, yes. The grass is not always greener where? 
on the other side. Yes, distance sometimes makes the heart grow fonder. Those are Proverbs. That's not in the Bible. Some of you guys are like, fonder? Where's that verse at? You know, you have Proverbs that we use, but Solomon gives us Proverbs, and he gives us tools and tips to help us understand what we're supposed to do and apply to our daily life. Why would we study them? I remember at a young age, my dad would show us the example to study the proverb of the day. What does that mean? There's 31 chapters. Each day would represent a day of the month. So today is Proverbs 11. We would read Proverbs 11. We would study it to see what God would speak to us, what he would say to us. And who is the writer of of Proverbs? Who is Solomon? This guy who wrote the book of Proverbs. Solomon is a guy that God approached in 1 Kings 3 and he said, I am going to give you anything you want. That's a big ask. How much money could I ask for? How many girlfriends could you ask for? How many cars could you ask? How strong would you want to be? You can get anything you want. And what does Solomon say? Give me wisdom to discern between good and evil. He is the Mr. Miyagi of our day. He is the Yoda for some of you Star Wars fans. I don't know why, but he's Yoda. He's got infinite wisdom placing for us and saying this is what we should do and this is how life should be lived. But there is a problem when you approach Proverbs and to teach from it. Proverbs are not promises. There are certain things that pastors or myself, Bible teachers, can get in trouble when we start saying dogmatic statements about the book of Proverbs. We can say things, if you do this, then this will happen every time. But sometimes that's not true. Example, Proverbs 15.1 says this. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Have you ever gotten to a fight with someone and you responded like this? And they continued to yell at you. Some of you be like, that was with you, Mike. It's not always true. Amen. It's not always true. Most of the time it is true. Or this is my favorite one, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. <sighs> Parents, what a truth. What a truth. Just train them up right. Don't screw it up. I have one hope as a parent. Hopefully she doesn't need a lot of counseling. Just, I mean, not a little bit's okay, but not a ton. Like, train them up decently. And we would hold this proverb to say, if I do a good job, my, my kids will, no matter what, follow God. And all of you parents would know that that is a proverb, not a promise. That each kid is responsible for their decisions. All, of, all parents would know that. And when the Proverbs speak of things that are not promises, we have to be careful. But today is a little bit different. Why is it different? Because it is a promise or it is absolutely true when it speaks of the character and nature of God. It's always a promise, it's, or it's always a proverb, unless today talks about the character and nature of God. So I have a friend, and I'm pretty sure I'm his best friend. Uh, we actually work out together, and at the end of one class one day, he went around the class and he asked this question. What's your least favorite workout? And I jumped, he was going this way, and I jumped, I was like, it's this way. He said, Mike, wait, your turn. Okay, sorry. Uh, He went around, and some people, it was distance running, it was short workouts, it was kayaking, I don't know, it was biking, it was certain workouts that we hated, and he would say this, that is where you have the most room for growth, and that is the one you need to not avoid the most. You need to engage in that workout, the one you hate the most. In the next couple weeks, you're kind of stuck with me as we talk about these topics that are super heavy, super heavy. But I challenge and encourage you, and even myself, I've had to ask myself the question, what do I need? 
not what do I want. What do I need and what does God want for me? Because when it shows what I need, it gives the most room for growth. And so we're going to jump into Proverbs 6. And as it gives six things that God hates. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. Now, why would it say six? Why would it say seven? What's abomination? What's hate? They're actually interchangeable. Abomination means even more so. Like if you said, I hate you, you would mean I really, 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 really hate you. And so God has something or some things that he hates. And the first one, haughty eyes. Pride. God hates pride. Why would he hate pride? Because it is something that misrepresents his character the most. It's something that reflects his absolute opposite nature. God is humble, so he looks at pride and he says, I hate those who have haughty eyes. It means I look in the mirror and I see something special. I mean, I look good, I feel good, I play good, I feel big time, I feel like a big deal, and then I'm reminded in the background, my wife reminding me, babe, you're, you're not that special. I thought I was. Haughty eyes. And here's the, I want to get practical as well. You know, you can, no one thinks that they're prideful. Nobody. I've never come across, I mean, you might disguise it. I'm just a prideful person, man. Just struggling with pride. Which in and of itself is pride projecting so that you would be perceived as humble. It is a slippery slope. How do you know if you're prideful? You know if you're prideful, or if I have learned, I proclaim to know my blind spots. Here's the thing about blind spots. If you know them, they are not blind. This is deep stuff. Welcome to church. You know? If they're blind, I don't know them. So I will perceive me. I just I know my blind spots. I don't handle criticism too well. Blind spots. Handling criticism. I have two ears and one mouth. Can you imagine if I had two mouths? I would talk a ton. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to handle it. I wouldn't be able to handle it. Solomon, the same writer of Proverbs, says in Ecclesiastes 4, 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. A prideful person can't handle anything anyone says about them. They are always wrong. Always. Things that are said about them, it is not a critique on what they have done. It's a critique on who they are as a person. And when I say, think about a prideful person in your life right now, go. None of us put ourselves in the mirror. None of us. I thought of someone else I knew. You thought of someone you knew. Not you. No, 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 no. But here's the truth about prideful people. Prideful people are always the loneliest people. Always. Seven days out of seven. They are unable, and when their closest friends speak to them, they are no longer close to them. Humility is attractive, which is why some of you love Jesus so much. He is so humble. He initiates, but pride is what God detests and what he hates. It is the actual reason why there was separation with God in Genesis 3, some of you would remember. It is the root of all sin, pride. Number two, what does God hate? A lying tongue or a false witness who breathes out lies. It's the only one he says twice and why he repeats it because he really, 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 really hates it. I was 13. Mom was out of town. I don't even know if she knows this story. 
We had a bonfire. Dad, can I have a bonfire tonight? Sure, bud, go ahead. One rule, one rule. No ladies. Bet. I don't know if I said it at 13, but I texted my friends. They came over. And who did I invite? The ladies. It was at my house. My dad was home. I wasn't even like smart about it, like lying, you know, just at my house. And he calls me at 9, 45, 10 o'clock. Hey, bud, how's it going? Great. Any girls there? Nope. His window is looking at the fire. <laughs> and then he said, don't you what? Lie to me. We got finished with the conversation. You know what was the worst part? Went home. All right, I'm home. I went in the house. <laughs> Didn't say a word. We went to bed. At 13, but we worked in the same building. Didn't talk that morning at work. And I had a friend who was picking me up to go to football practice that morning. And then right before I was getting ready to leave, hey, Dad, I'm leaving. He said, I'm going to take you to practice. <laughs> I'm, I mean, he said, no, no, I'll take you. We get in the car. He didn't scream at me. He didn't yell at me. He just said, Michael... Don't lie to me. It breaks what? Trust. Lying always reveals a lack of trust every single time. It always does. And when we lie to someone, it breaks trust. And you and I, we lie a ton. We, I, I do too. I'm putting us all in the camp. We lie. Who do we lie to the most? I lie to Mike Duma all the time. I lie to, I tell him things he likes to hear. I'll flatter him. I'll tell him things are worse than they are to put me in the pity camp. I won't tell myself the truth. And then the second person I lie to is I lie to God. I'll fluff it up to make it sound really Christian. You know those prayers where you want to hear a, mm, amen. Mm, that was good. That was good. I'll pray things fluffing it up to where God would rather be pleased with me. But just like with my dad, parents have a way of, and tell me if this isn't true, kids, your parents can smell the lie. Like, before you even get home, they smell it in the driveway. It's just like an aroma that, they, you know, you walk in, you're like, sup? And they can just see you. <laughs> and maybe my parents, I thought it was like God and them had like this thing that like, you know, this microscope, I didn't know. And with God, it is a thousand times more true that he sees it he smells it and he sees it and God's kind of like hey why would you lie to me just tell me where you're at in Ecclesiastes 5 Solomon the same writer was teaching when you come to God come with honesty come as you are come real he can handle you and he can handle me he's not shocked when I'm messed up he's not shocked when I'm not feeling it he already knows I tell God the truth because I need to get myself on the same page with him I need to tell him where I am. And here's what's true, that all of us need to make, when possible, I will tell myself and I will tell myself the truth and others even when it hurts. Because the reason I withhold truth, the reason I don't tell the truth, I want to protect someone. I feel like if I lie to my wife or if I lie to someone, I'm withholding truth because I don't want to hurt them, right? But even when it hurts, I have to commit to tell myself and others the truth, even when it hurts. Because the people who tell themselves the truth the most are the people who actually grow. They're able to see themselves in the right mirror where things actually are and say, hey, I need some help. Hey, I'm not doing well. I need to commit to that. Number three, which is probably the most difficult. 
Hands that shed innocent blood. So all of you have received, maybe not all of you, most of you have received a phone call, maybe like the one I got Monday morning. Monday, 10 o'clock, my mom called me. Family friend, 37 years old, out on a hike with her friends, randomly dies of a heart attack. No signs, no symptom, no nothing, just dies. Innocent life taken. Maybe for some of you it was a friend, it was a cousin, it was, a fam- it was somebody who died innocently. Maybe it's a drunk driver, maybe it's an accident, maybe it's a drive-by shooting. It's something you've experienced, an innocent life being taken. And the question you have is the question I have. Why would God hate something that he could prevent? Why do we turn to a God who has the ability, the ability to not let something happen but allows it anyway, but yet he hates it? Is that not one of the holes in our faith? That we turn to a God believing he could have stopped it in the first place. Solomon is talking about someone who sheds or kills an innocent life. And because we have to, because we have to, I want to be very clear. He is not talking about abortion, but I believe that is the application. Some of you, when I talk about abortion, it's not just a number, it's not a statistic, it's not red or blue. For you, it is personal. You know someone, God help you, you have done that, and you have extreme, an extreme form of guilt that you carry every single day. You don't need another pastor to get up here and yell about abortion and screaming about it because you carry this guilt that you feel like is una- you're unable, you're under its weight. I'm here to tell you that it is not the unforgivable sin, and when you come to Christ and he offers forgiveness, it is real it is practical, and there is nothing outside of his reach when it comes to forgiveness. With that being said, the abortion issue that we face is shedding innocent blood. It is a life. It says in the Bible that it is at conception, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God resents or hates the 1,200 babies in 2019 in Summit County that were killed or the 20,000 in Ohio, or the 900,000 in America last year alone. And we can talk all about that. What we need to know is this. If God hates it, I myself need to hate it. Why? Because I am to be this type of man. Under the book. Whatever God says. And God, when I don't hate what you hate, would you change my heart? When I don't love what you love, would you change my heart? God hates it. And even when I don't, even when I don't, I say, God, would you do something in me? Because each and every child is what? Fearfully and wonderfully made. I am not the author or giver of life. Therefore, I do not have the power or authority to give or take. It is outside of my bounds, but it is not, hear me, not the unforgivable sin. And if you have committed that, if you feel like you carry this guilt and shame, just know that Jesus invites that and he offers it freely to you because of what he has done on the cross. Number four, what does God hate? He hates a heart that devises wicked plans. Ah, premeditated sin. God hates it when I accidentally sin or I accidentally make a mistake, but he hates it even more when I think it, I thought it, 
I don't know what the other things are. I planned it. I did it. And when I was 16 years old, um, I was in Spanish too for some ungodly reason. I don't know why I was there. I thought I had to be, but I wasn't, shouldn't have been. I, I, I mean, like, ask Eric. I'm kind of like, hola, that's it. And I was in Spanish too. And the girl in front of me, super smart, 4.0, I said, hey, uh, can I borrow your homework? She said, sure, go ahead. So I took her homework, wrote down word for word. You thought I'd known better. Next day, Spanish 2, Mrs. Senor gets up. I would, like to, I would like to read to you Miguel's homework. Miguel is five foot two. He loves to play volleyball with his girlfriends and hang out and have slumber parties. Miguel's dad is the principal. Miguel's dad, and she went on, I mean, verbatim, I quoted it, I copied it verbatim, and she just embarrassed me in front of the whole class, and I mean, the whole class is laughing, I'm like, I play football, like I was just, you know, it's just really, really dumb. In football, what did we do if you played sports? There would be a guy on the other team, what? We wanted to hurt. I want to hurt this guy. We would plan evil. Why does God resent evil that is planned? The same reason you do. Whether you've grown up in church or not, I believe all of these things that we're talking about, or most of them, you would say, hey, I hate that too. You hate it because someone who hurts you on purpose is harder to forgive. If I do something against my wife on purpose, and then I approach her for forgiveness, what is she questioning? Did you actually mean your forgiveness? Did you actually mean your apology? And it is not harder for God to forgive us. Why? Because he already knows my heart. So when I come to him, He can already see what I planned, see what I did. I have to be extremely honest with God because he can read through the bullcrap. He can smell it. He can taste it. He already knows. So when I come, I have to say, God, this is what I planned. I didn't just think about it. It wasn't on accident, but I did it on purpose. Someone who hurts you is always harder to forgive when it's on purpose, every time. And it breaks trust and it breaks the relationship. Number five, what does God hate? He hates feet that make haste to run to evil. So it's not when I accidentally sin. It's not when I accidentally do something. It's not when I see it. It's in Isaiah 59, and I could bring up my friend Derek. I'd beat him in a race right now, and we could run. And it's Isaiah 57, 9, where it says, I don't just see evil. I what? I run to it. I should start doing wind sprints. I'm going to get tired. You see it, and you run to it. It causes direction for you. You don't just see the sin. No, you see it, you love it, and you make haste to it. It's not an accidental sin. When I was in high school and I would do something wrong, I could play this card. I was guilty by association, right? I didn't mean, I just showed up and they were doing this and then I shouldn't have been there and I lost my phone and died and blah, blah, blah. I got caught at Pronios too late and this and that. It would always be these other things. But God says he hates it when we run to evil. Why? Because when I love sin, it affects my entire life. It affects my entire life, which is my next point. It, the Bible, a lot of times, I like it down here. I might stay right here. This is kind of cool. No. Uh, when I run to it and I love it, it affects everything. We like to separate the physical, emotional, and spiritual in our own lives. That's how we do it. But the Bible will not allow. It talks to the whole person. David said in Psalm 32, what? I hid my sin and my bones were wasting away. When we run to sin, and I can remember times in my life running to sin, I was not just miserable. I couldn't sleep, didn't want to eat, nothing really tasted good. It was just, my my entire life was affected by it until 
until it became the norm. Until it was just who I was. I, my body, my, I learned to adjust. And sometimes God is trying to communicate to us in that way. Our feet run to evil. Number six, the last one. What God hates or detests is a one who sows discord among the brothers. Oh, guilty. Guilty. Gossip. He hates it. Why does he hate it? I think he hates it, number one, because from someone who's not following Christ, what is one of the top three reasons they can't follow Christ? You people. You people. All of you suckers believe this. All of you believe that. That's why. And God would say, and, and even if someone is projecting that on you, you're kind of like, I don't know about the other three million Christians like I know about me. And they'll see the, the, the lack of unity and they'll say, see, even you can't get along. Unity is a full-time gig, start to finish. The devil has a heyday with us being disunified. Now, I want to be very clear. Gossip, what is it? It is not me venting to my wife. It's not like I gotta lock it up, I can't tell anyone. Ecclesiastes 7 would say you should have one person that knows everything about you. One man. I don't want everyone to know everything about me. That'll get weird super quick up here. You imagine? If I was like, and then, and then, this, and then. you guys would be like, I'm, I'm out. It would get really weird really quick. But there should be somebody. Now it's not venting to somebody or having a soundboard. What is it? Gossip, I believe, clearly defined is there being two teams and me wanting my team to win. Two teams, and I want my team to win, so I will get people on my team. And the clearest way you can know practically that you are a gossiper like the rest of us mess-ups is this. When you're around the person you've gossiped, you sense distance, but they don't. You can feel, you think they know, and they don't know. You can sense it, you can feel it. That's the clearest form of a brother who sows discord. So I have to make this decision. I wasn't the one who thought about it. I don't even remember where I heard it. I need to commit when possible. I need to commit to talk to people, not about people. I'll talk to them, not about them, when possible. When I'm able, because God hates it. And when we are able to understand that he hates it because he wants us to be unified, and unity is not something that is, it, it is more proactive than reactive. When it's reactive, it really doesn't happen. But when we're at each other's throats is when it actually other people are able to say, see, you guys are just messed up, just like me. When I love what God hates, it's when I misrepresent him the most. When I love what he hates, when I look at pride, when I look at lying, when I look at shedding of innocent blood, when I look at all of those things and I say, yeah, I, I I would rather love some of those things. I don't, it feels good. It's addicting gossip. It's addicting. It's a form of my comfort or whatever. It's when we misrepresent God the most. And some of you might be asking this question. Does God love me? Does he love me? Or does he hate me? Why would God hate something? He hates sin because he is holy and separate then. And the awesome thing about God is when he hates something, what's he do? He shows initiation to redeem it. When I hate something, what do I do? I pout a lot. Uh, point me this and this and they did this. Uh. I don't know how that sounds like that. Ask Hope. Um, I hide it. I bury it down until it explodes in an unhealthy way. But what does God do? He shows action. 
It says in Romans 2.4, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Notice it does not say wrath. His wrath is poured out on sin. So Jesus comes and says, hey, I'll do what you can't do. But shows that his love, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus offers it. And even if we were to ask ourselves the question, does God love me? I need to look no further than what's right above my head. That the cross is what displays love. So I want to give you six things, real quick, six that apply to these, and I believe your life and mine. Number one, while we were prideful, Jesus humbles himself and comes in our place, Philippians 2.7. He sees our pride, and yet he humbles himself and does what you and I cannot do. When we lie, Jesus brings truth to set us free. He sees me lying. He sees in. He says, because Mike is a liar, I will come and bring truth. And when we kill the innocent, Jesus was innocently killed for us. A unjust death, but one that was necessary. Number four, when we planned evil, God planned to send Jesus for us before time. God could see that we would fall short and see that we needed Jesus, so he initiated and he sent him. Number five, When we have quick feet to evil, Jesus' feet bring the good news. In Isaiah 52, it actually talks about happiness. Delivers it to us. When our feet run from, his feet run to. And lastly, when we cause division, Jesus brings peace with God. In every single one of these that you and I fall short, Jesus meets the need, meets the need every single time. And whether you looked at the list of six things that God hates and you're like, does God hate me. No, no, no. He hates what sin does in us and hates sin. And some of you are thinking Psalm 5, does he hate the worker of iniquity? God does not hate sinners. Language of comparison, what we would say in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, that you would follow Jesus and hate your mother. No, no, no. God is not a hypocrite. He loves his enemies as we are called to. And you and I are enemies of God on our own. It says in Job 5.19, he will deliver you from six troubles. Whether you have looked at the list, you're kind of like one, or you're like all six or five, when you come to God, he delivers you from each and every one. God's hatred for sin is connected to how much he loves you. When he looks at sin and hates it so much, just like you would if you love something, If you love your son or daughter and something bad happens or they do something wrong, it draws action or love towards. If you love, for some of us, you love an object, a car, something, a house. When something happens to it, you love it so you do something about it. And that's exactly what God has done. He is not a God who looks at us and says, good luck. He is a God who takes our place and says, come. When Hope and I first got married, we've been married almost five years. It's been a long time. Some of you are like, five years? The first year was extremely tough. Why do I believe that was? I believe we were what? Getting to know each other. I didn't know, I I thought I knew her until we moved in the same house, you know? I didn't know certain things about her. She didn't know certain things about me, so what do we have to do? We had to get to know each other. Yeah, after we got married, because you think you know someone, and then it's I do, and bam. And once we got to know each other, I could learn what she loved, I could learn what she hated, and we could grow together. I believe it is the exact same way in your relationship with God. 
If you want to love what he loves and hates what he hates, you have to spend time with him. You got to get to know him. If you're driving to a city and say we all jumped in the big bus and we all headed down 77 North and we headed up to Cleveland and we got a certain distance away, all of us could go like this to a big building, to a city. We could be, it's this big. It's just this big. It doesn't look very big. But the closer we get, what happens? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We get out of the bus and we walk around. We're doing one of these jobbers. Wow, that's a big building. In your relationship with God, the closer you get to him, the better you see him. It's not that he changed. It's not that you changed. It's that your distance with him was lessened. And the closer you got, you could say, oh, I didn't see that that far away. I didn't know that that far away. And I believe it's the same way with God. Let me pray for you guys. It says in Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. God, your word says that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. God, I pray that the book of Proverbs would speak to us. Would it encourage us? Would it challenge us? Would it help me to live more like you. And God, for those who hear this message and just hear about your hatred, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do his thing. That it is not your hatred that draws us, but rather your kindness and your love. I pray that all of us would seek to honor you in everything that we do, that we would learn to hate what you hate and love what you love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.